I'd like to ask you, if you have your Bible, to turn with me to the book of John in the New Testament. And we're going to read verses 11 through 18, which will serve as the basis for the morning message. The Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, beginning with the 11th verse. These are the words of Jesus. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have no other sheep which are not of this, I have rather other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Over 600 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a prophet by the name of Ezekiel. And he spoke on behalf of the Lord God. More precisely, The Lord God spoke through the prophet. And we hear him saying in the 34th chapter of the prophecy of Ezekiel to the house of Israel and to the leadership in particular, those whom he describes as shepherds, those who were the priests and leaders of the nation. He says, you have defaulted on your responsibility. You have shirked your duty. Rather than to be people who care for the flock of God entrusted to you, you have turned inward and have cared only for yourself. This self-centeredness was reflected in their neglect of the people of Israel as far as their spiritual lives and their physical lives were concerned. It was also shown in the bigotry that they demonstrated toward people who were not the elite in the country. And God incensed at the behavior of those whom he had ordained to give leadership to his people, said this to them, I will seek the lost. I will return those who are scattered. I will bind up the broken. And I will strengthen the sick. He said, I will set over you one shepherd instead of many by implication. My servant David. And He will feed you. He will feed you Himself, and He will be your shepherd. Now understand that King David lived 300 or so years before those words were uttered. What was in the mind of God when He declared that He was going to give a different kind of shepherd to shepherd the people of God? Well, Jesus Christ was in mind, and Jesus 
we see in the Gospels and in this particular passage from Scripture served as that shepherd. He is described in the New Testament, among other ways, as the son of David. He was the physical descendant of King David. And he was that shepherd whom God set apart to minister to his people. He is the good shepherd. Let's consider his identity. We know Jesus himself is describing himself as this. But let's delve a little more deeply into the whole concept of his being the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. Twice he speaks in this passage in those terms. And by virtue of the way he describes himself, we know he was conscious of the fact that he was not any ordinary human being. Be sure, Jesus Christ is fully human, but he is also fully God. When he says, I am the good shepherd, he was aware of the fact that he was declaring that he himself was none other than the Lord God. Why do I say that? Well, earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says a remarkable thing. He says, before Abraham was, I am. What was he saying? He was saying, I predated even Father Abraham. He was saying, I am eternal. And he was using the name when he said, before Abraham, I was. The name which God gave to Moses. So Moses, when he would go to deliver Israel out of bondage, speak to Pharaoh and speak to the people of Israel. And they were to ask him, who is it who has sent you? God said through the burning bush experience to Moses, tell them that I am sent you. Jesus, the good shepherd, is God. He describes himself as the good shepherd. We know he's good because he's God. Perhaps you recall a visit which Jesus received from a young man who was inquiring what he must do to inherit eternal life. And the way in which the young man addresses him in the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter, he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember the response which Jesus gave to that description of himself by this young man? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, some could argue that Jesus was not aware of his being God by saying that, but that was not the case. In Jesus' case, he was simply saying to that young man, do you know who you're talking to? And only God is good. Our God is good. Jesus is our good shepherd. We have a good shepherd because he is God. Let's think about this word good a minute. There were two words which Jesus could have chosen. These words are used throughout the New Testament. One speaks of moral perfection. The other speaks of beauty. Beauty not only externally, but more importantly, internally. This is the word which Jesus chooses to describe himself when he says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the beautiful shepherd. I am the ideal shepherd. And certainly he was that, the ideal shepherd. But was Jesus someone, if we were to have seen Him, if we had lived in that day, and we had seen Him walking down the road, would we have been drawn to Him on the basis of His physical appearance? 
In Isaiah 53, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus being that Messiah, and fulfilling the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah, the Bible says about the Messiah, the suffering servant, there was nothing in him regarding his appearance that would attract us to him. Jesus was probably not what we would call ugly, whatever that means to you and me, but he was not a beautiful person physically, but he was beautiful internally. And really, it's what we are on the inside that makes a difference, isn't it? The Bible says God looks at the outward appearance. Inward, I mean, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God's only interested in your heart and my heart. That's what He's really interested in in the final analysis. Well, let's talk about how He is good in the sense of beautiful. He's beautiful in His being. The Scriptures tell us in several places that He was a righteous one. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the Bible says, Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus, the righteous one, substituted His life for our lives. What qualified Him for that was, He was indeed beautiful in His being as far as His character is concerned. Not one blemish, not one fault in Him. Speaking of faults, when Pilate had interviewed Jesus once and then again, and the people were clamoring for his crucifixion, they were being led by the religious establishment of the day in Palestine, and the religious leaders wanted to do away with Jesus because they were threatened by him. They did not want to relinquish power. He did not fit their preconceived notion about who Messiah would be. And this is what Pilate, remember what Pilate said when he finally gave in to the wishes of the mob about Jesus? He says, I find no guilt in him, no fault in him. The Apostle Paul says, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. Notice the way in which he's described, who knew no sin. Jesus is beautiful in His being, in terms of His moral character. He's perfect. Another aspect of His being that's very attractive to me is His gentleness and His humility. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Do you want an understanding of what real humility is? You have no further to look than to the person of Jesus Christ. The personification of gentleness and humility. The word translated gentleness, by the way, that Jesus uses in Matthew 11, is descriptive of a wild stallion who has been broken, and all that energy is still present, but it's come under control of another. In the case of Jesus, He's God. But even though He was God, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But the Scripture says He made Himself nothing. He became obedient to the Father. He submitted Himself fully to the Father to do the Father's will. So, Jesus is beautiful in His being. Does it appeal to you when you think of a person 
like Christ, who is God, a very God. And He is one who is gentle and humble in the way in which He relates to you and to others. He's beautiful in His being. He's not only beautiful in His being, He's also beautiful in His wisdom. Probably some of you would like some wisdom, right? We need to know, don't we? We want to know. You're adults for the most part, and you've come to the place a long time ago where you began to wonder and ask the question, Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Do you know the Bible answers all of those questions? You are a person created in the image of God. You are here for the express purpose of honoring God with your life. And the ultimate goal for you, if you come to know Jesus as your good shepherd, is that you will spend eternity with Him in heaven. And that doesn't mean you sit on a cloud somewhere, the caricature of heaven, people sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp or twiddling their thumbs. To the contrary, heaven is a dynamic place. It's a place of continuous growth in understanding of all things, not the least of which would be deeper understanding of God. But it's also a place of service. Whenever I have a few days off, I get a little fidgety. I don't know about you. Which probably tells you I'm sick in that way. I have a book in my library that I read 35 years ago and it hasn't taken effect. It says, when I relax, I feel guilty. Well, the idea is that it's good to relax. Heaven's going to be a place where there's no toil in the sense of labor that demands sweat from us. It's something that will be without that kind of resistance whatsoever. That's a great place to think about. Which leads to the next thing I would say. Jesus is our wisdom. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He is our wisdom. The Bible says remarkably that we who know Jesus Christ, if He is our shepherd, we have the mind of Christ. Can you imagine that? Let that sink in a moment. How do we have the mind of Christ? We have it because if we are His sheep, He has come to indwell us. We do not have the intellectual capacity of Jesus, but we have the understanding of things from His viewpoint, from God's viewpoint. Perhaps you recall when Matthew is concluding his assessment of the Sermon on the Mount in the seventh chapter of Matthew. This is what Matthew says, that the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. It was different from all their teachers because Jesus did not rely on human authority. He got His message directly from God the Father. Jesus is beautiful in His wisdom. You need wisdom? It's available to you in Christ, the Good Shepherd. Open the Bible. Ask Christ to speak to you. In the Gospels is a good place to begin. John's a good place to begin. If you've never exercised that option in your life. But He is beautiful also in His compassion. This touches me. This shows His shepherd's heart. In the ninth chapter of Matthew, Jesus was observing a vast number of people. And He says, in seeing the multitudes, He was moved with compassion. That's a word which speaks of gut-wrenching kind of response. He was moved with compassion as He looked at the multitudes because they were distressed and downcast like sheep 
without a shepherd. This world in which we live, this nation in which we live, is a nation inhabited by people who are shepherdless. And they're distressed and downcast. Maybe you fit one of those descriptions. Distressed, downcast, depressed, despondent, wandering as it were, lost. Well, the good news is Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's the good shepherd. What a great name for Jesus, right? So what did He do? Well, He talks about it repeatedly in this passage. As I was reading it again, it dawned on me how often He talks about how the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. One would conclude that Jesus was obsessed with laying down his life for his sheep. Do you get that message in this passage? He was obsessed with laying down his life for his sheep. Well, why was he so intent upon laying down his life for the sheep? I've already alluded to one answer to the question. It's found in verse 18, the very last part. Jesus says, this commandment of laying down His life for the sheep, I receive from my Father. That was good enough for Jesus. Jesus was told by the Father to do something. Unhesitatingly, Jesus would do that. He came, He said, in the book of Hebrews 10, to do the will of the Father. He came to do God's will. And so, He laid down His life, if for no other reason, to be obedient to the Father. But He also laid down His life so that he could purchase sheep. Look again at verse 14 of our text. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. How do you suppose Jesus the good shepherd got his sheep? He didn't rustle them. He didn't steal them. He's perfect, right? How did he get them? He got them, as we saw in the book of 1 Peter Chapter 1, 18 and 19, by giving His blood. He purchased us. The word redeemed is a word which comes right out of the New Testament era in terms of the slave market. When someone was going to buy someone to be a slave, the person was said to have redeemed that person. This word was also used to redeem or purchase back prisoners of war. Jesus Christ didn't do it with silver or gold like people would purchase people those days and purchase their freedom. Jesus Christ has purchased our freedom as His sheep by giving His life. The word blood as it relates to Christ. We sang about the blood of Christ. It may seem a little odd to you. maybe a little morbid to you if you're not familiar with the language of the New Testament. But the concept of the blood of Christ... Whenever it's used, it's used to describe the death of Jesus Christ as He died to purchase our salvation. He laid down His life to purchase us. Wonderful, isn't it? That we are bought by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. Amazing. The Good Shepherd lays down His life For the sheep, because the Father commands it, but also because it's necessary so that He could have us, and we are His own. What a phenomenal thing. Here's another reason. Jesus laid down His life to protect us. Do you know who He was protecting us from? Well, in one sense, He was protecting us from Satan himself. Look at verse 10. We did not read it. But let's go and take a look at it now. 
the thief, speaking of Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The M.O. of the devil is destruction. His name is Apollyon or Abaddon, two names which mean destroyer. He is a destroyer. And he is so subtle in the ways that he goes about destroying us. He is the master deceiver. He whispers in our ear in a moment like this today that really Jesus did not do for us what we could never do for ourselves in that Jesus made us righteous and came to set us free. And nobody would want that, right? Nobody would want to be set free from his or her sin and the mastery of sin. That's just not the case. Jesus Christ came to protect us from sin, too. Sin is a heavy thing. Sin exacts a wage. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is without exception. Every one of us is a sinner, apart from the grace of God. And the Bible goes on to say the wages of sin is death. Sin is exacts the heaviest of all tolls from people. And Jesus laid down His life. He became sin for us. He became the place of the punishment for our sin when He died on the cross. He protects us. Now He continues to protect us. Look at the way in which He protects us here in verse 27. If you'll look a little further down the page. Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them. And they follow me. And I give. Notice that word. It's the operative word. I give eternal life to them. It's neither earned nor is it deserved. I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Now, let me use a visual illustration for a moment. I have a contact lens case in my right hand. And I'm going to ask you to imagine that my right hand is the hand of God the Father. My left hand is the hand of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says in the sixth chapter of John. He says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Now listen carefully. The grammar is extremely important here. Jesus would not have made a good English grammarian. But in Greek, when a person wanted to make the strongest possible statement negatively then the speaker or writer would put the two negatives which were available in the Greek language side by side. So let's consider this verse one more time. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I will give eternal life to them, and they will not never perish. Not never. That's poor English, isn't it? Not never. But that's Jesus' way of saying, once the Father gives to me, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, And whoever comes to me, this is what Jesus says there in that section, I will not never throw away. Jesus will never ditch you. He will never dump you. He will never defriend you. He is one who is going to be your shepherd from the word go once you give your life to Jesus. Once you hear His voice and you decide to follow Him. Isn't it rather simple? Hear the voice of Christ and then follow Him. You may raise the question, how do I know the voice of Jesus? I've never heard Him speak, you say. 
He speaks to us in our heart. When we read words like these that we're reading today, and we consider what Christ says, and we realize, we're going to see in a moment, the resurrection is very important. It's ultimately important to our knowing God. Jesus had to be raised from the dead in order that He could give us life eternal. But when we sense in our hearts Christ is speaking to us and saying, I love you. I love you so much that I laid down my life for you. Not only did I lay down my life for you, but I took it up again. On my own initiative, I lay it down. Nobody twisted my arm, Jesus would say, to die for you. I did it because I loved you. The only compulsion I had was my compulsion to love you and to give you eternal life. What a gospel we have. What a good shepherd is ours. Amazing. He is one who lays down his life in obedience to the Father. He lays down his life to purchase us from enslavement to sin and to Satan. He lays down His life to protect us. Jesus also lays down His life so that He can take it up again, so that He can give His life to us. Let's go to verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And then He wants to give His life to you. Let's go back to verse 10 for a moment and read the conclusion of verse 10. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This word abundantly is a fascinating word. It's a mathematical term. It's used to describe... An abundance, a surplus is what is used to describe in Matthew chapter 14, verse 20, after Jesus has fed the 5,000, miraculously fed them, He tells His disciples to gather up the leftovers. There are 12 baskets full of food left over. They gathered them up. It said there was an abundance of food after Jesus had fed. Isn't that just like Christ? And this tells us something. It tells us what this abundant life is, it's more than you or I will ever need in any situation when we trust in Him. It's not about being a person who is intent upon material abundance, although that is part of the picture. But it's about a man or a woman who is hungry for fullness in his or her life when that person has experienced emptiness. Do you ever feel empty in your life? Blaise Pascal, the great French philosopher, mathematician, a tremendous churchman. He went to Mass every day of his adult life and probably before he became an adult. He observed all the holidays. He was very focused on doing whatever he could to make himself right with God. And then all at once in his 30s, it dawned on him that he, like all humanity, was born with a God-shaped vacuum. And in his writings, he makes this reference. Every human being is created with a God-shaped vacuum. And by implication, only God can fill it. And God came and filled him. And he was a person who overflowed abundantly. In Matthew, excuse me, John chapter 7, Jesus talks about, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers 
of living water. What happens when we become sheep of Christ and we receive this abundant life? We become conduits of that life to other people. It's like living water begins to just sort of overflow out of us. We become the conveyors of that life. It's His life. It's the very life of Jesus. Do you understand why it's so important that Christ is alive today, why He was raised from the dead? Well, it's so important so that you and I could really live and therefore fulfill our intended purpose to bring honor and glory to the Lord. That's the reason that the Lord did that. And we become the pipeline of life to other people. And I heard a pastor say one time, in his understanding, that when water flows through a pipe, it's conveying it somewhere else, but it gets wet in the process too, right? That's us, isn't it? When we trust in the Lord and let Him live His abundant life through us, the result is that we get blessed as well. This is the resurrection life. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, The Bible says this, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. I want to fix on just one of those three things which Paul the Apostle desired. He said, I want to know the power of the resurrection of Christ. He came to know it, and you and I can too. It is the power for change in your life. I'm going to mention three names. You perhaps are familiar with one, maybe more of these names. One is from the 18th century, Gilbert West. He was an agnostic, if not an atheist. He decided he would write a book to disprove the resurrection of Christ. And before he got very far into his investigation, when he began to interact with the pages of Scripture, the Christ of Scripture came alive to him, and he became a convert, and not simply a convert, but an evangelist for the gospel and person of Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. Go to the next century. Lou Wallace, you know the movie Ben-Hur, or the book Ben-Hur. Wallace was a friend of a man by the name of Robert Ingersoll. Ingersoll and he had fought together as officers in the Union Army during the Civil War. In a conversation which they had on a train ride one day, Ingersoll, who billed himself as the greatest agnostic of his day, he was thought to have been the most powerful public orator of his day. Walt Whitman said that about him. And Whitman wrote in his will that he wanted him to be the speaker at his funeral. He gave the eulogy. He was a brilliant man, but he was a man who did not believe in the Lord. And he was trying to persuade Lew Wallace, General Lew Wallace, to take his writing skills, he knew he was a novelist, and to write a book to disprove the reality of Jesus. That Jesus wasn't raised from the dead and is... Wallace pondered that and began to research that. He too became a bona fide, devoted sheep of Christ. Changed by the resurrected Christ. Gilbert West, Lou Wallace. And then in last century, a man named Frank Morrison, a lawyer. Seems that these lawyers are the ones who have a little difficulty believing Jesus is raised from the dead. But when they started, when they start investigating the evidence, If you're a lawyer and you don't know Christ, if you don't want to get turned over by Christ and become a new man or new woman, don't read the gospel, okay? Because you'll get 
that happened to you is awesome. Well, the last person, Frank Morrison, began to write the book, and you guessed it, he didn't finish it. He was changed. The first chapter of the book, which he did write, which is entitled, Who Moved the Stone?, is the book that would not be written. Talking about his attempt to write a book to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is alive. The power of the resurrection changes life. It's interesting that we see the humor of God in a way by taking these agnostics and atheists and turn them on their head when they really begin to take an honest, objective look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. This power is the power of change. It's the power to bring peace in our lives too. Do you need some peace in your life? It brings peace with God. The Bible says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we who are His sheep have peace with God. Through whom? The Lord Jesus Christ, our Good Shepherd. He gives us that peace. He gives us this abundant life. He gives us His life in exchange for our death. That's why He went to the cross. Remember, He had to suffer our death in order that we might have the option to really live in this life. As I was coming to this place today, there was a car parked on the side of the road on the street on which I live. And there was a tire on the back with a tire cover. And... The wording went like this. Live life, you only have one. Live life, the life that you and I have in this life, if we're going to live it the way we were intended to live it, and I'm not talking about being sticks in the mud. I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about really enjoying life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, is what the Scripture says. Do you want that kind of life? Or do you want to continually have to look for more ways of inventing diversions from the boredom and the depression of this life? Well, trust Christ. Follow the Good Shepherd. He's the one who can do that. Peace with God, but also the peace of God. The Bible talks about the peace of God. Jesus is God. We've established that. He says, I am. That indicates He's God. I am the Good Shepherd. He's God. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Therefore, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be fearful. That sounds like peace to me. It's His peace, though. This is critically important. I hope I have not neglected to properly explain this. It's His presence in your life. It's His life in your life that enables you to have this peace. No Christ, no peace. Jesus can't even bring Himself to use the word peace when He's comparing the kind of peace He gives to that which the world offers. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. You can't even use the word peace because it doesn't fit with the world. The world, at best, is a very poor substitute, the peace of the world, to the kind of peace you can have and I can have in the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a boy, my earliest memory was when I was three years old. And I was with my mom and dad. We were walking to a movie theater from the parking lot where we had parked across the street from the theater. It was the normal theater on Highland Street in Memphis, Tennessee. 
My mom had me by one hand, my dad the other. As we crossed the street, a drunk man ran through the light and hit us. My parents rather miraculously avoided any serious injury, but I was taken out of their hands and thrown across the street into the parking lot where my parents had parked. My earliest memories are of that event. I don't remember the actual being hit. I do remember being laying on a desk, a makeshift table in the service station on the side of the street. I remember part of the ambulance ride. I remember this especially being in the operating room. I had a broken leg, fractured skull, broken collarbone, and more minor injuries. But I remember because, I don't remember hearing this, but I know after being told and learned a few things, is that I could not have anesthesia administered for the setting of my leg because of the head injury. And I was crying bloody murder. I was screaming, and I was screaming one, screaming one thing over and over and over again. I want my daddy. I want my daddy. I want my daddy. And there were several people there who were masked up, and they were mostly males. I remember that. And one of those men said, in an attempt to quiet me down, he says, I'm your daddy. I said, you're not my daddy. I want my daddy. I don't know if I probably wasn't doing this to him. But that's what I was thinking. And so the authorities there let Dad in. And he came in. I saw him and he spoke my name. He said, Michael. And so the story goes, I became quiet when I heard the voice of my father. Jesus talks about his sheep hearing his voice. That's what the Lord would say to you. He's whispering your name perhaps today. And He's saying, I want you to follow Me. I want you to be My sheep. Are you aware of the fact that the devil has co-opted the reputation of God? Are you aware of the fact that the devil loves to demean Jesus Christ and demean God the Father? And demean the Holy Spirit of God? To demean the body of Christ? And one of the ways he does, he gives us the idea and caricatures God as an ogre who sits somewhere outside of time and eternity and just delights in watching people perish and sending them to an eternal place of damnation forever. But listen to what God says. Once more, through the prophet Ezekiel, the Bible says, Why, O Israel, God speaks, Why, O Israel, will you perish? For I do not take delight or pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Turn and believe. Turn and believe. That's the message of Jesus for us today. He's alive. He has been raised from the dead. He paid the ultimate price for that death so He could secure a place for you in heaven. But listen to one more thing Jesus says, and we'll be finished. He says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. The door of your life. I'm knocking. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him or her. And I will fellowship with him or her. In other words, I will live 
in you forever. And I will change you. And I will remove any fear of dying from you. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has secured your salvation. It's yours to hear His voice and open the door of your heart to receive Him. Would you bow your head? How can you turn Christ away? What would keep you from not receiving the Good Shepherd into your life who is ready to purchase you, to protect you, who is ready to exchange His life for yours? Would you just ask Christ right now to speak to your heart? Jesus, I pray for those present who have yet to receive you that today would be the day of their salvation. They would not live another moment longer separated from You by their sin, but they would give You control of their lives, Lord, and know You through Jesus. Amen.